circumstances. And we come to the next major player, and that's Abraham. So we're going to look at several of the Abraham stories that are found in the book of Genesis. Uh, Abraham is famous for being the father of three major world religions of Judaism, Christianity and Islam. Abraham was known for his faith, being a a great man of faith, and he was known as the friend of God. But before we get into the Abraham story, it kind of begins in chapter 11. And chapter 11, 27 to 32, provides a little background information to help us frame who Abraham is. So let me read that passage first, do a little background, and then we'll really get into the Abraham story. This is the account of Terah. Terah became the father of Abram, and I probably will call him Abraham sometimes, okay? Officially, he's still Abram, but I'm probably going to call him Abraham, okay? Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. While his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans in the land of his birth. Abram and Nahor both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no children. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years and he died in Haran. Little background here. It says they're from Ur of the Chaldeans. Okay, there's if you look in the, the notes or commentaries, almost all the scholars will say this place was in southwest Mesopotamia, which was today southwest Iraq. I don't think that's where he's from at all. There's another Ur that a minority of scholars believe he was from was southeast Turkey right out near the Syrian border. And I think there's some good reasons for holding that as the place that he's from. One is there's a town called Urfa still in that region today. And there are other town names of Abraham's family. And so there's a strong tradition in this area that that's where Abraham was from. And also someone named Nimrod, who appeared just earlier in the text. There is some other reasons to hold that, that this is a spot When Abraham was looking for a wife for his son, Isaac, he sent his his servant to this exact area in southeast Turkey to find a wife for his son. When Jacob was fleeing from his brother Esau, he came to this region, this this area. And also, it's the most direct route if you were going down to the promised land and not from Iraq. All right. So I I think it was in southeast Turkey. Not a not a huge deal, but I just like to share that with you. Abraham's father was Terah. He was the head of their clan. His brothers are mentioned, along with Abraham, nephew Lot, wife Sarai. She was his half-sister and barren, the text tells us. So that's going to be really important in the Abraham story. So for some unknown reason, we're not told exactly why Terah decides to take part of his family to the land of Canaan, which would be modern day Israel. But they stop part way. 
Joshua 24, 2 tells us this, gives us another insight into this text. Joshua said to all the people, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says long ago. Your forefathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the river, the Euphrates River, which begins up in Turkey and worshipped other gods. One of the gods they worshipped was Chaldi, K-A-L-D-I, which we give the term Chaldeans. So Abraham was from Ur of the Chaldi worshippers. He was an idol worshipper. He was a pagan, Abraham. And so God had to pull this man away because God had a plan for his life, had to pull him away from that area of his ancestors and the area of ancestor worship and the various gods they worshipped to a new place where Abraham and his descendants would worship the true and living God. So this is the first point about the background. I want you to see about Abraham. He's a very important person in Scripture. But yet look at his background. Idol worshiper, pagan, unbeliever, as all of us were, weren't we, at one time? We didn't know the Lord. We weren't followers of him. So this is to tell you that no matter what your background was, it doesn't have to be your present. God could take you from whatever bad past you may have had and still use you in a powerful and profound way for him. In Haran... Abraham hears a call after his father has passed away. This is the key moment of his life. He's either going to say yes to the Lord or no. He's so important because God is going to begin his plan of redemption for the entire world through one person. Imagine being that one person that God singles out. I'm picking and choosing you because through you, I want to bless the entire world. I want to send my son, Jesus, someday to be the savior of the whole world, that they might believe in me. And he starts with this man named Abraham, the idol worshiper, the worshiper of Chaldi. He's going to use him. So Abraham is going to receive a call to a land and to a son. We're going to look at the mainly our focus is on the call to the land today and the son next week. Let's read now Genesis 12, 1 to 3. This is a very important passage in the whole of the Bible. It's really foundational, as are many of the passages in the book of Genesis, a foundational book for the rest of the Bible. Genesis 12, 1 to 3. The Lord had said to Abram, leave your country, your people and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Let me read Hebrews 11, 8 also. By faith, Abraham When called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. So what prompted Abraham to decide we are leaving Haran and we're going to go to wherever God shows us? It would have to be God's call. So what's a call? Does God call you up on the phone? Does he speak to you in an audible voice? Does he put a bunch of supernatural signs in the sky for you? 
How did God communicate his will to Abraham? I want to give you five things I see here that God did with a call to Abraham. And, and maybe for you, it's like, I hope there's some points of application for you and that you can relate to this at all in your own life and God's call on your life. Maybe there won't be. Then you'll just be, wow, that was cool what God did for Abraham. It's, it's still really important to the salvation story. But I hope there's some things in here for you, too, that you see. The first thing is God's call is personal. God's call is personal. We see that in verse one. The Lord said to Abram, it's not somebody else telling you. He comes to you. It isn't something that you read in the newspaper and say, oh, I really like what that guy did and where that guy moved. So I think we're going to do that, too. It's it's that God comes to you personally and he shows you something. Big things are usually initiated by God. They're to you. Your salvation was initiated by God. No matter what you think in your mind, I was really seeking God. I really wanted God in my life. God was already putting that desire in you. He was already moving toward you, initiating a relationship with him. I think our marriages are a God thing that God providentially brought that person into your life. It's just the right time. They're the one for you. For me, seminary, I'll tell you a little bit more about that story later. And, and our calls to the churches where we've served were, were God moments where, where God came to me or us and made his will clear and known. It's personal. It's direct. God shows you. He gives you peace. Have you ever experienced that? Second thing is God's call is clear. Also, verse one. Leave your country, your people and your family. There's no ambiguity about that. It, it isn't. Was that God? Did I hear God? What am I supposed to do? I have no idea. Now, God doesn't say where he's supposed to go yet and everything he's supposed to do there. Hebrews eleven eight. But he makes it clear you're to go. God doesn't give you a blueprint for the rest of your life. Man, I wish he did sometimes. Wouldn't that be nice? You know, everything's all laid out. I know everything I'm going to do. But then again, on the other hand, that may not be so great, right? There'd be things like, oh, I, I wish I didn't know that, that that's going to happen down the road. But what God makes clear to you is the next step. Leave your family. And Jesus does the same in the New Testament, right, to the disciples. He just approached one of them and said, follow me. He didn't say, now, here's what you're going to do the next 30 years. Just follow me. He didn't tell them exactly where they're going or what they're going to do. Just follow me. It's a life of faith. We don't always know what the future is going to be, but we know the next step. Thirdly, God's call is non-negotiable. Verse one, leave your family and go to the land I will show you. Notice here, God doesn't say, you know what, Abraham, if you would like to do this, I, I think that would be really neat. I think you really like the weather here a lot better. Abraham, have you considered a move recently? I think you should consider it. No, leave, go. Of course, God knows what's best for us. And so he commands. He doesn't suggest. Yet we don't feel like we're being pushed or forced. Yes, we have our free will, but we begin to feel like I should do that. I'm motivated to do that. I want to do that. God has a plan for your life. He presents it as a command. And if you obey, you're blessed. Number four, 
God's call is attached to a promise. This is the sweet spot. This is how God can motivate us to do his will. We see that in verses two and three. Let me read some other texts that are related to this. Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. For I know the plans I have for you. God has plans for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. And this is while the people are sitting in Babylonian captivity, of course, that God tells them this. First Corinthians 2, 9. However, as it is written... No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. It's a good plan that he has for your life. Hebrews eleven six. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So this is how God motivates you to go and do his will. It's attached to a promise. Now, there's a lot of unknowns still about God's call. It may be really hard, but it will be worth it. So I remember a call to ministry. Actually, the first time I kind of sensed it, I was six years old. But there were a lot of years, those teen years in between where God's call on my life was the farthest thing from my life. In fact, I was living in real rebellion because I didn't have a personal relationship with God until I was 19. So after that, I started to sense a call on my life towards some kind of ministry. I didn't know what, but I started getting involved in the church I was attending and had some opportunities to teach and got some affirmation from that. And yet I felt like I think I'm going to be a pastor. And so for me, the right thing, and not everybody has to follow this route, I wanted to go to seminary, but I realized to go to seminary, I have to go to college first. So now I'm 22 years old. I've never been to college. So that's when I started college, finished college. Then I could go to seminary and really focus studies on theology and the word and all those things that I really loved and wanted to, to do. So all along, we felt like, yes, seminary is where we want to go. But where? And started researching some places, and the place that resonated was Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena, California, across the country. It was far away. It was kind of scary, but it was also exciting. And we felt God urging us, that's where you're to go. And so we went. We stepped out in faith, not knowing. We knew where we were going. We knew the final spot, but we didn't know anything in between and, and what would happen the next three years. But God was in it. And also, even the call to pastor here. It was clear. We knew that God was in it. And I think the same can be true for lay folks, for you. Wherever you're at, God has a call in your life to serve him in some capacity, in some way. Yeah, you'll probably have a job. You'll be raising your family. But he's got a kingdom purpose for you and has gifted you for that. Will there be risk? Yeah, there's always risk. But there will be rewards, too. And the fifth thing is... God's call brings change. Wouldn't it be great if you could just stay in your same comfy world and situation and still do God's will and be writing his plan for you? It often doesn't work that way. Verse four says Abraham left. When you obey, your life will never be the same again. If you reject that call, God knows how to make your life miserable, too. And you're never too old to change. Abraham was 75 years old when he heard this call to go. But he was a spring chicken compared to Noah, who was about 480 
when he heard a call to build an ark. I recently read this story. I loved it about a lady who lived in Melbourne, Australia. She was a follower of Jesus, loved him. And so she had recently was a widow and she was enjoying her years there and her retirement. It was very comfortable, but she felt God strongly saying to her, I want you to move and buy a house right by the university in Melbourne. So she did that. And then a little bit later, she felt really led and prompted to God's saying, I want you to put signs up around the university that come by my house if you're homesick and have tea with me at four o'clock every day. So that's what she did. She wrote up these signs and for two weeks, no one came. But then after two weeks, a young girl from Indonesia showed up at her house. And then a little later, a girl from Pakistan and then India, Japan, America, Australia, New Zealand. Ten years later, she died. And at her funeral, there were thousands of college students and young adults whose lives she had impacted. Now, we don't hear a call of God every day, every week, every month. Maybe it's only a few times in our life, this really big thing. And maybe not as big as Abraham's call, right? But I just don't want you to think, well, that sort of thing is only for pastors and missionaries. No, I believe it's for everybody. In some areas of life, God's got a call for you. Okay, God knows how to lead you. John 10, 4 says his sheep follow him because they know his voice. So what you got to do is just listen. Be praying and open and listen. God, are you saying anything for me to do? God can lead you. I'm amazed at how he can lead a particular salmon to swim 4,000 miles upstream to the exact place where it was born, if you will, and lay its eggs at that exact spot. If, if God can lead a salmon to do that, you're a lot smarter than a salmon. You could follow his will. The African impala can jump 10 feet high and 30 foot long. Yet, in some zoos, it's kept in a three-foot-high fence. How is that? Because it won't jump if it can't see where it's going to land. So, apparently, the fence is set up in such a way where it can't see beyond that. So, it won't jump. It's kept a virtual prisoner inside something that it could easily escape. And sometimes I think that's true in our lives. We, We allow our fears We get set in our ways. We get comfortable. And God is saying jump, but we won't jump because we can't see everything out ahead of us. We can't see the whole blueprint. So we just kind of stay frozen where we are. I say to you today, jump. You can do it. You can easily clear that three foot barrier. And you know where you're going to land? It's going to be okay because God is leading you. But when you jump and you land and you're kind of now out there. In the middle of nowhere, what are you going to do? What's going to happen? Well, I tell you what's going to happen. Problems are going to happen. Because God's going to test you in his plan. So how did Abraham do when he was tested? Let's kind of continue on in the story. The first thing is he only partially obeyed. He only partially obeyed. The second part of verse four, you might have Genesis 12 open, says, and Lot went with him. Okay, what? So what? No big deal, right? That's his nephew. Remember the command, leave your father, leave your family, leave your country and your father's household 
and go to the place I'm going to tell you. That included his relatives. So I don't know if Abraham felt responsible for Lot because Lot's father had died. I don't know if Abraham thought, I'm childless. Maybe Lot will be my heir. For whatever reason, Abraham brought Lot along. And it's disobedience. And God allowed it, didn't he? God didn't stop him. Lot went. And I think the same is true with us. Sometimes God shows us to do something and we only do it partially. We partially obey and assume that's good enough, God. I mean, I I did some of what you showed me. And you know what's going to happen? Abraham had some tough lessons and so will you. Lot became one big, huge headache for Abraham. Chapter 13, the very next chapter, it says that Abraham and Lot's flocks were growing and the, the herdsmen begin to quarrel and fight with each other over this limited bit of land. So it brought a separation in the relationship with Abraham and Lot because Lot was there. The very next chapter, chapter 14, Lot goes up and gets kidnapped. And Abraham has to assemble a little army to go rescue Lot. And I thought, what would have happened if in this battle rescuing Lot, Abraham would have got killed? Would that have messed up God's plan? And then a little bit later, Lot winds up in the very rich, fertile area of Sodom. And Abraham has to rescue Lot again from because Sodom was going to be destroyed this time by prayer. So you see, you partially obey. And what do you get? You get some problems along with the deal. God let him get away with partial obedience. But then you have to learn the hard way. Have you ever had to learn the hard way? Have your kids ever had to learn the hard way? Don't touch that stove. It's hot. Ow. Guess you had to learn the hard way. And God lets that happen. So the partial obedience is the first issue. Here's the second one. He faced a crisis. His second problem was he brought Lot along. That was the first one. Partial obedience. The second problem he faced was a crisis. Now we're going to see the crisis. Verse 6 is a mini one. And verse 10 is the big one. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. That's going to be the minor problem. Now, verse 10, there was a famine in the land. This is the big problem. And Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. I don't see in the text where it says God told him to go down to Egypt, does it? He went down to Egypt. Okay, so crises in our lives, problems in our lives can cause us to question God's call. God, I obeyed you. I did exactly what you told me to do. And now I've got all these problems in my life. What's going on? I must not have heard God. Canaanites were in the land. So God says to Abraham, go to the land. I'll show you the land I'm I'm giving you. Abraham gets there and he looks around and there's like thousands of Canaanites around. He's one person. The Canaanites, if they heard this, they'd say, oh, we don't agree with your plan. You're not getting this land. But then in verse 10, this is a bigger crisis for, for him. No food. We got to do something. So if you obey God's will, he's going to test you. He's going to allow problems. He's going to show you that your own human energy isn't enough. Your own human resources won't help you get through this. 
God's going to let you see what it's like to try to manage your life without him. So Abraham, though, handled the first problem of the Canaanites pretty well. Let's look at verse seven. The Lord appeared to Abram and said to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. So Lord is clarifying a little bit here to your, your descendants. I'm going to give this land. So what does he do? He builds an altar. That's really a good thing to do whenever you have a problem. Noah did it right when he got off the, the boat. We saw he built an altar. Now, Abraham builds an altar here. Elders are places to encounter God. He encounters God. The, the original call is brought back to him. He's given clarity and understanding. So when you're obeying God, but then you're faced with this avalanche of problems, what do you do? Worship. Worship God. Build an altar. Seek his face again and let him clarify, give you further understanding into what he wants you to do. Obstacles can make us question God's call. Did I really hear God right? And God assures him you heard correctly. Now, Abraham's never going to see the totality of this promised land given to him. It's going to be future descendants. Joshua is going to conquer this land and Abraham's descendants are going to control it. Have problems? Worship. Now, let's look at the famine problem. He doesn't handle the famine problem well at all. He panics. Let's read the text. 12, 11 to 20. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say this is his wife. Then they will kill me. But will let you live. Say you are my sister so that I will be treated well for your sake and my life will be spared because of you. He's already having to manipulate and wheel and deal here, right? When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that she was very beautiful, a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abram well for her sake. And Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, men servants and maid servants. Pay attention to that maid servant. He, he's going to pick up somebody in Egypt, a maid servant, who's going to wind up being a problem for him later. And camels. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me? He said, why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her to be my wife? Now, then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. So what does Abram do when there's a famine in the land? He runs to Egypt. And this becomes a pattern for God's people in the rest of history of Israel. They look to Egypt for answers. They look to Egypt to meet their needs. Egypt represents Sin in Scripture and Pharaoh represents Satan in Scripture. So he looked to Egypt to meet his needs. And Christians, we can do the same thing. We can look to the world. We can look to a particular person 
We can look to money, whatever it is, to meet our needs. And then when we look to that thing to meet our needs, that thing becomes our God. And we become idolaters. Abraham was living in fear. Fear is a very powerful and negative emotion that the enemy uses to get us out of God's will. We're right where we should be. And then something happens and we become fearful and we think, well, I've got to do that. Of course, it's the rational, reasonable thing to do, not stay where there's a famine. We'll we'll starve to death. You know what the world will do to us Christians every day? Of course, they're doing it to the the non-Christians, just pumping out their lies and their propaganda to get your eyes off God, to live in fear. And boy, the world has sure been fearful. Fear causes us to lose sight of God, to lose sight of our call, to pull back, to disobey. So here's my theory. It doesn't say it in the text. So I don't know if it's correct or not. It's just my theory that it was the influence of Lot and Sarah, his wife, that pulled him down to Egypt. So let me tell you why I think that is. We know that Lot's MO was he wanted the best land, the best situation always. He would compromise at the drop of a hat to have the best thing for himself. There's a famine in the land, all the, the land for the, the animals to, to graze on was drying up. So, Abraham, we got to move. We got to go where there's better pasture land. So I think Lot was pressuring him. Just again, just my theory. And Sarah, I think, was too. And the reason I say that was they got into Egypt and she got kidnapped and taken into Pharaoh's harem. So I this is, again, just my own thinking that God was going to let that happen to her as a result of her bad advice that she gave her husband. Again, I don't know if that's the case, but it might be the case. So now the situation is tough for Abraham. This is when you've got to persevere in your faith because the closest ones around you might tell you, oh, you've got to do this. You've got to do that. God didn't tell you to do that. God didn't tell you to go to Egypt. But the people around you, your influences are telling you, you've got to do that. This is where it gets tough. I've got to listen to God. Now, it seems like on the outside, everything was pretty cushy for Abraham in Egypt. He lied and he's getting a lot of wealth coming his way. But everything wasn't going very well spiritually for him. But let's think of a few things that weren't going well. His wife gets kidnapped and is in Pharaoh's harem. She's 65 years old. This woman must have been very vibrant. Abraham was about to be killed. He thought he was going to be killed. He lied about her being his sister, which was only half true. God sends a plague on Pharaoh. Does that sound familiar? God sends a plague on Pharaoh in Egypt. So Pharaoh learns the truth about this. And man, he's really ticked off and he rebukes Abraham. And I thought, wow, the man of God gets rebuked by the Satan type. Isn't that something when sometimes Christians are so out of line, so out of God's will that a worldly person comes along and rebukes them to their face because they're not doing the right thing? That's a sad state of affairs. So he prospered. He got lots of maidservants and men servants and camels and donkeys, including Hagar. But he wasn't in God's will and God wasn't blessing him. 
And you know what? If you read chapter 20, Abraham repeats this same lie again to Abimelech. It's an area of weakness in his character. And it's why we repeat certain sins over and over again. And we are perplexed. Why do I keep falling into the same sin over and over again? I just need a little more willpower. No, you need Christ's power. This is an area of weakness in your character that God wants to change. Okay. so what happens when we allow fear to control us? We forget God. We forget all about God. He's not asking God, what should I do? Where should I go? Let me build an altar here and seek your face. No, he just is collecting all the goods. You know what God did anyway, showed up and rescued him and delivered him. And so that's our hope. Even when we fail, even when we mess up as Christians, God still comes down. He he grabs us. He delivers us. He rescues us. He helps us. He never leaves us or forsakes us. He, he gives us a lot more than we deserve. He's better to us than we deserve. Have you experienced a failure recently? Don't quit. Don't turn your back on God. Just repent of it and God will deliver you and get you back on course again. OK, application. Just a couple things to think about this week. If you're wrestling with this text. Write down the times in your life where you've heard God's call. I think it's good to ponder that from time to time. What did God do in your life? Any of these things or some other principles that he wants to use in your life in the future? How has God called? What has God called you to in the past? How did he do it? Another thing is, ask yourself, am I living in Egypt right now in fear? If I'm under a spirit of fear, that's not of God. I mean, there's natural things to be afraid of. But if you're living under a spirit of fear, you're in Egypt and you need to get out of there. And the last thing is, do I need to move back to the promised land right now? I've moved outside of God's will for my life. I'm in Egypt. I need to get back to the promised land. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would use this important text of Scripture for salvation in history. And in some ways hinges on the importance of this text and the call of Abraham. So thank you for Abraham and his faith and that he obeyed and that you used a flawed person with a bad background and who made mistakes and had some character flaws, but you still used him for your salvation purposes. So, Lord, encourage us today. You can use us with our bad background and past and with uh, the sin that we so easily fall into. You want to forgive us and restore us and put us back on the path again. Lord, we we repent. We look to you. We, we build an altar right now today. Speak to us. Speak to your people, Lord. Show us what you want us to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.